0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: And that's something we want to know if there was an intermediate host that the virus infected, especially a wild animal in the the wild animal markets in China.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here coming to you from the heart of Texas down in sunny San Antonio at the Commodity Classic, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are things back in Iowa?
2: You know what? We actually got a little snow today, a little light sprinkling.
0: Oh man! I tell you what, I, I went out for breakfast this morning, and the uh, waitress at our restaurant here in San Antonio remarked on how cold it was down here. I mean, it mm-hmm. was like only fifty-five degrees this morning.
2: Yeah, that's about how it was when I was down there for NCBA a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, I don't right, know. it's a struggle. It's the yeah. struggle.
0: You know, this is this is the things I'm willing to put up with. To bring quality ag content to our listeners, Delaney.
2: Okay, great, Mike. We're all proud of you for that.
0: You and I making the sacrifices to make the magic happen. That's right. Well, I tell you what, it is interesting down here. You know, we spoke yesterday on the podcast about what what are we hearing from growers. And today I've been asking the same questions. How are things looking in your area? And I've talked to folks from Michigan, talked to folks, talked to our good friend Carl Setzer, the uh, the. Other half of the goddess of grain, Andy Setzer, frequent podcast commentator. But um, Michigan, Tennessee, Alabama, Kansas, South Dakota, Western Iowa. The overall verdict is things are wet. Wet, wet, wet is the word of the day. We've already got guys talking about prevent plant. It is shaping up to be a struggle. Now, everybody has said it is still very early to know for sure how things are going to shake out still plenty of time for things to dry down those long-term forecasts delaney are calling for more moisture
2: Mm -hmm. yeah you're right mike and because of the such wet weather and just excessive moisture as well as just other damages because of 2019 we saw of course the usda has announced some extra trade aid for folks who had either really excess moisture or even some drought in some parts of the country and so Farmers can start applying for that disaster res- disaster assistance authorized by Congress starting on March 23rd here. So that WIP Plus program that we saw Congress approve of last year gives about $4.6 billion to cover 2018 and 2019 disasters. So sign up, get those dollars if you were one of those producers affected by some of that really, really wet weather.
0: And Delaney, I'm I'm assuming you're looking at the article this came from. I just wondered if we have the answer. Do You need to be in a federally declared disaster area to qualify, or is it some other way you just do it at the FSA office?
2: I believe you have to be in a federally declared disaster area, but you still have to sign up for it through your FSA office. So if you have questions about whether or not your area counts, I would just ask your FSA office.
0: Absolutely. One-stop shop. They know everything. And listeners, remember, March 15th is the deadline to get in and make your two-year selection for ARC or PLC Mm -hmm. insurance coverage. And so I know for a lot of folks, I mean, I think everybody I know went with ARC county coverage on the last round of signups, but economists are out there. And I know University of Illinois and Iowa State University is not University of Illinois. Yeah. Yeah, U of I here in Illinois at FarmDoc and uh, all these other land-grant universities have done some math. And the equations might be different this year as you're looking ahead. So be sure to get in there to your FSA office and get signed up by March 15th and throw your name in for some disaster aid as well.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Mike, because we've only seen – or we still have yet to see about one-third of el- of the nation's eligible producers haven't made a selection yet. And, of course, as you say there, the deadline is quickly approaching.
0: It is. So one-third. And, you know, I've got a feeling I've heard from, again, a lot of folks down here at Commodity Classic, uh, it's wait and see. They're going to push that to the 15th to get a feel for, okay, how much are we actually going to be able to get in the ground? What are price points looking like? How are these things going to pay out as the markets continue to move on this coronavirus fear?
2: Yes, I think that you are correct. It's a good thing you mentioned coronavirus, too, because that is today's interview chatting with Dr. Linda Safe of The Ohio State University about just that. But I've got a couple other quick pieces of news before we get to that interview for today, Mike, the first of which is coming to us from the EPA. Actually, kind of a two-parter here. So we saw yesterday EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler met in the House Energy and Subcommittee and basically was discussing with them how the courts were going to respond to the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that we've talked about previously here where they issued those three different small refinery waivers And so he said, you know, within the next couple of days, the Trump administration is going to announce how they go about those recent appeal court decisions, which struck down those three small refinery exemption waivers. That was yesterday. Then today we saw Secretary Perdue address a crowd full of folks or maybe it was was it yesterday afternoon or today this morning?
0: Um, that one might have been yesterday afternoon. I believe he is still here today.
2: Okay, well, I believe, okay, so I think he addressed folks this morning, but it might have been this afternoon, essentially telling the folks in the Commodity Classic audience that we're going to see those waivers significantly reduced this year, which will help, of course, ethanol demand going forward. So we're almost seeing again here two sides of a story being shared, the one with Secretary with Secretary Purdue saying we will, in fact, see these waivers significantly reduced. EPA Administrator Wheeler is saying yeah, it's more of a wait-and-see game.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I, I really hope Secretary Purdue is pushing the right people around to make them issue fewer waivers. But at the end of the day, it's the EPA's discretion. USDA can share their thoughts. But if uh, Administrator Wheeler wants to get those things out, that the oil companies are really pushing hard... And we're going to see them issued. So it would be nice to see confirmation that there are going to be fewer mm-hmm. exemptions this year. The corn market needs it. We need some kind of confirmation that this administration is actually uh, doing the, the right thing, so to speak, to uh, get biofuel demand back up. And Delaney, that leads to my our, uh, next news story. The U.S. us. Ag Department has announced they're going to make available $100 million in grants to expand infrastructure to sell more ethanol, biodiesel, and other renewable fuels. This is an ongoing program that USDA funds. When they have the money, and of course the appropriations have to come from Congress, it hasn't happened every single year, but I believe last year, and now with this $100 billion, these are funds that uh, retailers can apply for to install blender pumps, basically to, you get a tank of ethanol and a tank of gasoline, and these pumps meter it together so you can sell E10, E15, E25, up to E85, which, you know, a lot of folks in the ag industry think could certainly help improve bio uh, biofuel availability. You know, consumers can't buy E15 if it's not sold at the gas station. Mm-hmm. This should allow more gas stations to get the product moving.
2: I also saw that Secretary Purdue was in- implementing at least E10 vehicles into their USDA fleet now as well.
0: Well, that's good news, but man, that's late. I didn't realize they didn't do that, uh, Delaney.
2: Yeah, I didn't either.
0: All right. Well, thanks for getting on the team, Secretary Perdue. I mean, that, that's a win. It's taken them about 15 years to get, get on board the train, yep. but
2: glad they're on it. Right. Yep, absolutely. Well, I just have... Yeah, I just have
0: two other quick pieces of news. Uh, the first is news from Illinois. Illinois leads the nation in dicamba drift complaints. Last year there were 724 complaints on dicamba drift. After some of the recent lawsuits, um, they're they're looking for ways to bring that number down. And so one way they're looking at doing it, the Illinois legislature, uh, excuse me, but yeah, the the Department of Agriculture in Illinois just introduced a bill, Senate Bill 2507. That is going to significantly raise the fines for pesticide misuse so basically if you're in illinois and you do cause drift through misuse of dicamba or other pesticides but dicamba is the one they're really going with now you are going to be slapped with a much bigger fine um doesn't define the fine limits yet but um it is going to be significantly higher if this bill makes it through the legislature
2: and are we seeing any other states uh, watching this to determine if they're going to do it in their states?
0: Yep. This is kind of uh, industry leading, and it's, it's going to be a bellwether, especially if it passes and if it works. If a couple people get slapped with giant fines and dicamba drift complaints fall, uh, we will certainly see this replicated in other states, particularly across the southeast, where the, the drifts have been more substantial than they have in the north, at least looking at a, a numbers basis.
2: Okay. Well, another thing that we're watching or have been watching for quite some time now is what's been going on in the tariff situation, the tariff arena. We saw folks, especially those in Congress, discussing whether or not, maybe that's not the correct word, fighting, maybe might be a better word, fighting whether or not the Trump administration and President Trump did indeed have the authority to put on some of these tariffs, especially on imported steel and aluminum. Well, we saw the Federal Circuit Court of Appeal issued an opinion on Friday that said President Trump does indeed have the authority under a 1962 law to impose the 25% tariffs for national security reasons. So those folks that have been fighting him tooth and nail saying President Trump did not have the authority to do this. In fact, they were incorrect and he does have the authority to do this and hopefully this... Make some people in Congress be quiet, and they focus on some other issues because it just makes me mad that they're focusing so much time on some of these silly issues when they are much bigger and better things I think they should be focusing their time on.
0: Well, and I'm inclined to agree. I think we'd all love to see Congress focus on on things that actually matter. But Delaney, the tariff issue—if I am an American importer and my Congressperson isn't working to get tariffs put on the stuff I bring into this country reduced. You know, I'm going to be awfully upset. It's a major issue for folks that have been slapped with, you know, 35 to 50 percent tariffs on things they import. You can only pass so much of that cost along to the American consumer and you just got to eat the rest of it. Uh, I had this conversation with a company that is importing slab steel, and uh, they were saying that, you know, we thought the steel tariffs were going to be awesome. It was going to drive American Mm. steel production, but they import enough of this. I forget what it's called. I'm sure some of our listeners are more familiar. Uh, We're going to import just a little of this slab stuff. So it's unfinished. All the finishing gets finished here in this country. Employ, I don't know, 1,500 people, something like that down in Texas here. And uh, they're having to lay people off. They can't afford to pay the tariffs. So the steel tariffs are actually hurting this steel company.
2: Well, unfortunately, it sounds like they might continue to be uh, hurt then.
0: Right. Yep, I think you're right. And that's just the way these things go. You know, once you get politicians involved, there's a winner and there's a loser.
2: There that there is.
0: Well, Glenny, I tell you what, I'm all out of news. Should we jump into the markets and see where things close for the day?
2: Let's do it, Mike.
0: All right, folks. We've got a better day than yesterday for producers, seeing a little more smiles down here at Commodity Classic today, but we are still seeing significant red on the screen. It's just Not as red as yesterday. Looking at the corn market right off the bat, the May contract was down, excuse me, Whoa, up a quarter of a cent to finish at 368 and a quarter. December down a half, closed at 377 even. In soybeans, the May contract drops two and a quarter to close at eight ninety-two and three quarters. November down five and a quarter, finishing the day at nine oh eight and a quarter. Over in the wheat pit, May Wheat Chicago down two and a half cents at five twenty five even. The December down two and three quarters to close at five forty-three and a half. Looking over at livestock, we've got uh Weakness again in the cattle complex. April live cattle down $2.90. Not quite limit down. They did finish off the lows. The June contract, uh, they finished at 107.57.50. June contract down 272.5 to close at 101.20. In feeder cattle, the April contract dropped at $1.37.50 to close at 132.70. The May down 2 dollars two and a half cents, closing at 133.52.50. Lean hogs, weakness again, not nearly as substantial as yesterday. The April contract dropped 27.5 cents at 62.27.50. The May down seventy two 72.5 to close at 69 oh two and a half. Looking over at the dairy market class three milk February contract, oh, finishing today was up a penny, closed at seventeen dollars on the nose, the March down a penny. Wrapping up today's trading at sixteen thirty one. Without further ado, Delaney, let's get in and talk coronavirus for today's interview.
2: Well, we are continuing our coronavirus discussion today with Dr. Linda Safe of The Ohio State University, who is a distinguished university professor and works within the College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Safe, thank you so much for joining today. You're welcome. So tell me, before we get into the nitty gritty of the coronavirus and other epidemics, tell me a little bit more about your role within the College of Veterinary Medicine at The Ohio State University.
1: So, <clears throat> I'm a professor and um, I work mainly on enteric and respiratory diseases of, of food animals and some animal models for human diseases. So, I've spent most of my career working on coronaviruses, rotaviruses, and calicivirus, and we look, <clears throat> um, we work on pathogenesis or how the virus causes the disease in the animal and then we try to develop new diagnostics for the viruses and we look at the immune responses in the animals to the viruses and then finally we try to develop vaccines as needed uh, for these uh, diseases.
2: Dr. Safe, when you look at the coronavirus is there are there multiple types of this virus? It sounds almost as if that is the case.
1: So <clears throat> this virus is a new type of uh, what's called a beta coronavirus. There are four um, different categories of coronavirus in the coronavirus family. There are four members, and they call them alpha beta, gamma delta. So, this virus is in the same lineage as the SARS coronavirus, although, uh, so it's like a sister of SARS, but it's, um has a lot of properties that are also unique from SARS.
2: Okay, got it. That makes sense. So, then when you compare this current version to the SARS epidemic that we saw in 2003, how do those two diseases
1: compare? Well... It seems that in terms of severe cases where there's um, especially fever, but also pneumonia, the the pathogenesis in terms of the pneumonia uh, seems to be very similar in terms of the severity. But what appears to be different is that this virus, for whatever reason, seems to be more transmissible from human to human, and it spreads more readily among humans. And some scientists think that it's because it has a a greater affinity for the receptor, um, the way it actually binds to the cells in the host, um, than the SARS coronavirus did. So it appears that the human to human transmission is more efficient with this virus. A lot of people, 100% of people that had the SARS coronavirus had a fever before they started shedding the virus. This does not seem to be the case with this virus. And there also seem to be subclinical infections where the person can potentially shed the virus but doesn't yet have fever or cough or symptoms. So that's very worrisome in terms of trying to control the spread of the virus. So there are some similarities, a lot of similarities, but also a number of differences here. And we're just learning more about this virus. We don't really know all the details about how the virus is spreading, um, whether these people that have subclinical infections, how efficient they are at transmitting it to other contacts If there's any spread besides droplets, if there's fecal spread, if there's diarrhea cases like there were with SARS and the other respiratory uh, coronavirus, the Middle East respiratory coronavirus. So those are all things we really need to learn a lot more about. And
2: there's definitely a lot of moving parts to the coronavirus, but it it sounds like, at least from a news cycle perspective, it's not something that's going to be going away anytime soon. When you look at the coronavirus' impact then on agriculture in particular, what are your thoughts, your premonitions here moving forward?
1: So we don't know yet which all what are all the animal species this virus can infect? And that's something we want to know if there was an intermediate host that the virus infected, especially a wild animal in in the wild animal markets in China, and then it spilled over from that species into humans. We know that there's similar viruses in bats, but again, they're not identical. So, since we know that there are other animal reservoirs for this virus, I think we, we need to pay a lot of attention that we wouldn't have the same reservoirs here in the U.S. that could transmit the virus, or if this virus becomes widespread in the U.S., we really also need to monitor animals, especially livestock, to be certain that there aren't cases where humans might be spreading it to the livestock. because like influenza, we can have cases where um, humans can actually transmit the influenza virus to the swine, as well as swine transmitting it to humans. So this is all questions we don't have answers to, but they're all things we should be alert to and make sure that we monitor also.
2: And Dr. Safe, have there been any cases yet that have shown humans spreading to the coronavirus to livestock?
1: No, I'm not aware of any, and no one has reported that in China. Uh, But I think, you know, it's always best to err on the side of over-precaution than under-precaution. So I think, especially like for swine, um, where you have a large number of swine congregated in a facility, you should use the same parameters that you would if people have influenza infections, which means that those people that are sick, either they they ideally should not be coming to work, but when they're sick, they should not be necessarily working with the swine either. Got it. And presumably they're sick with this virus is going to be quarantined.
2: And and I assume, taking precautions to have increased biosecurity is not going to harm anything either. It's going to help, if nothing else.
1: Exactly. So there's no evidence at all that this virus is being transmitted from humans to livestock. But again, it's just better to err on the precautionary side and use the usual stringent biosecurity measures and the same measures you would with your um, workers Um, if they were infected with influenza.
2: Absolutely. Got that. Dr. Safe, since since I do have you on on the line today, I've got to ask as well, do you spend any time looking at African swine fever or discussing that in your line of
1: work? Um, Obviously, you know, since I work with swine, I'm very interested in the situation with African swine fever. We're not working on it directly here, although there are some colleagues here in my uh, department who would, would like to start a project working on it, especially we, because we have the biosecurity level, the BSL-3, that's needed to work on the virus. Um, so there is a lot of interest here. And, you know, I would say for swine now, that would probably be the major threat for US swine would be the African swine fever virus. Yeah, that's so one, yeah. Hopefully, swine producers, you know, are gonna be aware of all possible venues that this virus could come in and get introduced into swine, um, and also be able to recognize it rapidly if there were an outbreak to curtail the outbreak immediately. So test and slaughter as needed immediately so it can't spread, like it did in China. Because you can see in China how fast the outbreak got out of control. Absolutely.
2: I mean, I think that's been the thing that's been most interesting, if nothing else, to watch has been the strain or the spread of this strain across China.
1: Yes, and that's uh, alarming, I think.
2: Definitely alarming. Well, Dr. Safe, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your knowledge with us today. It sounds like biosecurity and continued caution is mostly how we should proceed forward and maybe not erring on the side of extreme as of yet.
1: Right. I think that's true. So unless we would actually discover any of this virus in livestock, there's no evidence for it right now. But certainly the more Concerning thing now is the human cases and how we're going to, uh, you know, uh, combat if the virus becomes more widespread in the U.S. And hopefully, from everything I've heard, CDC, um, the public health agencies, both state and local, and as well as federal, have prepared its plans in place to deal with this virus if it would become more widespread.
2: Well, that's what we like to hear. Hopefully there is some sort of plan in place, but Dr. Safe, thank you so much for joining today.
1: Okay, you're quite welcome.
2: Well, again, a big thank you there to Dr. Safe for discussing coronavirus. Definitely a topic that's not going to be going away anytime soon, Mike.
0: I think you are exactly right about that. It is certainly a hot topic of conversation down here in San Antonio. Listeners, I will be down at booth 3376 in the trade show for the rest of today and tomorrow morning. If you're at Commodity Classic, come by. I want to chat with you. I want to get to know the folks that tune into the podcast. And if you're up for it, love to talk to you on the air. Get your thoughts on the ag market in your part of the world. And you can connect with us, myself, Delaney, at Ag News Daily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We always want to hear what's going on in your part of the world. Let's stay in touch, folks. Find us there or visit us on the website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney Howell, should we let the listeners go?
2: Let's let them go.